Welcome to Wabanaki Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring. Wabanaki Windows is a monthly show featuring Wabanaki perspectives, topics, and opinions, as well as interviews with Native artists, writers, and people of interest. Wabanaki Windows is being brought to you by WERU in East Orland, uh, Maine, in partnership with WMPG Portland, Maine. Today is the 11th show in our series on unpacking sovereignty. We'll be talking with Professors Harold Prince uh, and uh, Professor Darren Ranko. Professor Prince is a native of the Netherlands. He's a distinguished professor of anthropology and an emeritus at Kansas State University, a well-known Wabanaki historian. Uh, and, and then uh, Professor Darren Ranko. Professor Ranko is a member of the Penobscot Nation and associate professor of anthropology and chair of Native American Studies at the University of Maine. Last time in series 10, we discussed early 20th century issues, such as the Citizenship Act of 1924. Uh, we talked a bit about uh, World War I and World War II, the Proctor Report, and some of the uh, women warriors of the time, like Lucy Pula and Florence Shea. Today in series 11, uh, we'll look at the effects uh, of during the termination, what we consider the termination era, I guess, from the early 50s. We're going to try to get uh, to the 70s. So uh, let's start out in the early 50s. This is, this is about, what, 10 years after the uh, Proctor Report. And we'll start out with uh, Professor Harold Prince. Um, Harold? Yes. Um... An important um, issue is when you uh, review um, Penobscot and other Wabanaki sovereignty issues that their struggle reflects that of many other Native nations in uh, Canada as well as in the United States, because the so-called Indian problem um, had to be solved. And in the 19th century, the idea was that the Indian problem would be solved by uh, native people becoming extinct. Um, and if they weren't going to become extinct, uh, the idea was that they would be assimilated. And the idea behind uh, places like Carlisle, uh, we talked about that earlier, was the idea about uh, kill the Indian, save the man idea. And so uh, when uh, indigenous peoples on both sides of the border uh, in Canada, as well as in the United States, when they, instead of um, becoming extinct, were actually uh, representing a population growth uh, that was the exact opposite as what had been expected. But at the same time, uh, the cultures had come under great pressure and it meant language loss, many other issues of loss. So uh, Darren was uh, earlier referring to the termination period, and I think you did too, and that happened in the Eisenhower administration. So that came as a reaction to the Roosevelt years from the 1930s and uh, World War II, of course, came in between. There was the idea about reconstituting uh, tribal governments that happened of the, uh, in the 1930s, mid 1930s. And that idea was then scuttled in the 1950s about the idea of abolishing reservations. And that was also actually proposed uh, for Maine, um, uh, Senator Muskie, for example, um, 
publicly proposed to abolish the Passamaquoddy Reservation in, I think it was 1956. So uh, here you see an issue that while people were realizing that there was poverty, endemic poverty, and uh, major problems in terms of human rights on the reservation, they thought by abolishing the reservations that somehow the problem would go away. And that was not true, of course. And a quick uh, comment now about the paradox of um, the draft that we briefly touched upon in with respect to uh, World War II. Um, because of the poverty in part, many Native Americans on both sides of the border, uh, Native Canadians uh, as well as uh, Native Americans, uh, entered the war uh, because of great poverty very often, other than for reasons of uh, patriotism, which also existed. And, but the wars were uh, fought against the Japanese uh, and Germans primarily um, brought new dignity to, um, uh, to not only to these men who distinguished themselves in combat, but also women who served uh, in the armed forces in uh, World War II in particular. And when they returned back to the reservations after they had been overseas, fighting in North Africa, Italy, France, Germany, Luxembourg, Netherlands, uh, and of course in the Pacific, uh, their sense of equality in the military was squashed when they came back and went back to the same old patterns of being discriminated against. And so here you see that in the years right after World War II, uh, veterans who had returned and who had distinguished themselves in combat and who had made buddies uh, in the Marine Corps or in the infantry or in the Air Force, um, they were not going to take a second seat again. And so here you see a new leadership being elected of these young men who had been overseas, had seen the world, and were not um, uh, accepting anymore a second um, uh, rank uh, status in the, uh, in the American society. And that fueled the resistance against determination when the, um, the federal government, but also the state government, uh, basically tried to, um, to end discrimination by abolishing Indian status and uh, the Indian lands. Aaron? Yeah, and you know, I think <clears throat> it can't be underestimated that, uh, you know, um, uh, Muskie, when he was governor in, in, in 56, um, really, um, recognizing this this period you know the the joint house uh, uh u.s house of representatives resolution with the u.s senate um came in um the first drafts in 1952 and then in 1953 the joint resolution was passed to basically start terminating tribes and you know within a couple of years governor muskie is proposing the reservations be abolished and um you know, this is part of that context that 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 Harold mentioned of folks um, who had been, uh, especially in World War II, um, and and had had connected with with folks um, there, and uh, I believe it was uh, John Men John Mitchell who was Lieutenant Governor under um, Francis uh, Bunny Ranko at the time in '57. He reached out to his um, friend. Who's also a Marine, uh, James Murphy, who was a lawyer in Massachusetts, to um, um, 
really start reframing the discussion uh, in terms of rights. And, and that's where you have these, um, this delegation and these letters exchanged um, from the Penobscot Nation to uh, first um, going to the legislature, but, but mobilizing slightly different language um, and language of nationhood, language that is um, rooted in international law and treaties, um, really emphasizing that set of frameworks uh, and I mean, really remobilizing them. Of course, this, is the, this has been there all along. Um, and so you first have this um, um, kind of seven points that, that the Penobscot Nation presents to uh, the legislature um, with the help of Murphy um, and Nick Smith, who, who, who also wrote about this and has a wonderful paper published about it. That's where I'm getting like 75% of my information on this. Um, um, and then you have the, um, and then you have this uh, letter sent by the Penobscot Nation to, to the United Nations, um, um, you know, basically uh, engaging in international frameworks of rights and in, in, in indigenous rights and rights of people. Um, you know, it's still a relatively, you know, to think back, you know, that this move of um, the United Nations was still relatively new. Um, the, the, the treaty uh, on the human rights treaty, which really framed up the work of the United Nations is, you know, was only put forward in, in, in 1947, 1948, um, that these are all relatively new kind of internationally recognized for, fora and, and, and treaties. Um, and really mobilizing that as well as historic treaties and relationships that you see in this language, um, uh, a lot of this, um, 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 you know, citing of, of international law, of international, of the rights of, of, of people being violated, the idea that someone's very homeland could be unilaterally erased through destroy, you know, getting rid of the reservation, all of these things are are really uh, called out at, in this time period. And, and quite honestly, it's, it's a time period where um, there's this, you know, this contradiction that Harold mentioned that people who are in the service, um, who were uh, granted, you know, recognized with some dignity can't come home to Maine uh, and in the context of our reservations in Maine and being treated uh, once again, as as completely second class citizens and you know, or third class, I mean, it's 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 abominable and and it's um you know by the I mean this period gets studied you know at some point too as you know in terms of the access to jobs, capital, any of the things that would um, keep keep a a community afloat. Um, these are really still very difficult times, but you have this mobilization and these connections that. Um, the tribes are really starting to work on. Yeah, let me just interject here and, and just put a fine point on this. Uh, 1957, uh, when uh, the, the tribes were looking at it, you know, they wanted to terminate the tribes, particularly here, well, in Maine they did. So uh, in 1957, this representative named Alex Latino, Latino, L-E, TNO of Old Town. And he was a member of the uh, Welfare Committee 
And uh, this uh, Stevens, the commissioner Stevens, I forget his first name, but he, uh, he made recommendations uh, that there's, again, that there, we should eliminate the tribes somehow in his report. And uh, so Latino picks up on that and he submits three bills. Uh, the first bill is uh, an act creating Indian reservations as unorganized territory and repealing certain acts relating to Indians. So uh, the effects of that bill would just make Indians, uh, put Indians into unorganized territory, take their government away, uh, just make them main citizens. Uh, and, and of course the, the tribes were made aware of these, of these bills. The second bill uh, was uh, LD 1133, an act authorizing certain members of the Penobscot tribe to borrow money. And then uh, the effects of the act was that Indians may mortgage property on Indian Island, but only to make repairs. And the loans would be guaranteed through the Indian trust funds. And uh, the case of default, the state uh, could step in and, and sell property uh, either to, to a tribal member and, and the funds could go, would go back to the trust fund. Uh, then the third one was an act abolishing tribal committee of Penobscot Indians and transferring duties of governor and council, which basically abolished tribal government and uh, gave those responsibilities to the governor of the state of Maine. So, and, and that's where, uh, everybody got up, they got really upset because uh, their very uh, existence was gonna be uh, legislated away. And so, as you point out, they wrote this seven point letter and CC'd it to the UN, to uh, the president, to the governor, to anybody they could think of. Um, and I think that, that that letter, most points they made in that letter I think you could read that today in front of the state legislature and be just as uh, right on point. Uh, do you have a copy of that, Darren? Yeah, no, I'm looking at it right now. Yeah, because yeah, Nick, Nick, Nick has it. It's, it's short. I mean, yeah, no. I have to read that. It's a phenomenal um, piece. I mean, and, you know, the point seven is describing those three laws um, as well as. You know, um, you know, again, sort of running through them. And I'll say that the form um, of this letter, where also um, the uh, the different families are represented um, through clan and clan marks too, is a is a form of diplomacy that is. Um, you know, I think shocking to the settlers in the state, maybe in the 1950s, that that you know folks mobilized this through clan identities and through the markings of that you would see in in you know treaties from a couple hundred years ago of 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 the representation of clan identities and um, the drawings of you know the rabbit, the eel, the Surgeon, the Raven, you know, all these things that are in this letter as well. Um, so I just, I want to put that, but yeah, I mean, you know, points one through through six before they discuss the, how, how horrible these are, um, 
these laws will be, you know, are again are sort of, you know, to, to, to be more specific of what I was talking about before, you know, point number one is we are a free nation and are free people subject to only certain treaty obligations with the United States and the successor nation of the obligation of Massachusetts and Maine. Um, and then pointing out that Maine has not honored its obligations, right? So very much like what you could hear, you could have heard last Tuesday in, in the rationale for passing LD 1626. Um, the state of Maine cannot define who is an Indian any more than it can define who is German or Canadian. The position of the Penobscot tribe is that, again, we are free people with these treaty obligations. Number three, the Penobscots are not wards or citizens of the state of Maine. Again, a free and independent nation with treaty making power and obligations, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then it repeats the sort of notion of state of Maine trying to define who is Indian and where Indian territory is. Um, and then point five, this, and I love this one, the Penobscot nation is older in the community of nations than the nation of Ghana in Africa, which the vice president of the United States recently in 1957 visited. Um, and then this last piece in setting up the critiques of, the, of those bills that you talked about is, you know, the, the context of where, where and why they're sending this. This is, uh, this is an appeal to the president, to the Congress, the people of the United States, in whose behalf Penobscot men have voluntarily fought in every war waged by the United States to aid the Penobscot in their fight for freedom and justice. So um, the idea that our warriors had, um, you know, given um, some of them the, the biggest sacrifice they can for the United States, it's time to kind of return that favor and fight for our ability and our rights and our freedoms uh, as Penobscots. So I think that, again, that this is the language that's being mobilized in the mid fifties as a response to, we want to terminate you. Um, so it really does mobilize the notions of nationhood and, and frameworks of treaties that are so critical to, as you mentioned, Donna, things that could have been just mentioned this past week in the state legislature. And it was shortly after that that Ed Muskie reversed his position. Yes, he did. He did. I think it was getting. I. I mean, I think, and I. You know this more than I do, but I think this got picked up. Um, and, and and again, Nick Smith was part of this. They 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 hold they held some a series of meetings that started to get some. I don't know if it's national attention, but the media started covering this as a as a as a kind of rights issue and the fact that many of these people had are were veterans were were you know be, you know somewhat beyond reproach um um it was starting to look um bad for muskie and, and others who were supporting it and, and i and i also none of those bills passed um right so so that it i mean they didn't pass a bunch of good bills either <laughs> to help out what was happening on but but those ones that really would have basically taken away um the reservations the government you know basically these are laws of, ter of termination yeah Harold? i'd say maybe uh, useful uh, for your audience to know that there were particular people in the tribal government of the Penobscot Nation uh, who may be uh, deserving of mention. Um, and I'm here looking at uh, the list of um, lieutenant governors right after World War II and until 
uh, and through that period where uh, the Penobscot nation begins to reassert itself as Darren was just reciting from that document from 1957. But here are the names, Melvin Neptune, uh, Lieutenant Governor, 1947-1948, followed by David Sapio, another veteran uh, who fought in a tank division in, uh, in France and in uh, Luxembourg, uh, was actually a sergeant, uh, decorated too. Then uh, John Mitchell, son of a tribal governor who together with his brother served in the Marine Corps in the Pacific. He later becomes the uh, tribal governor, but he becomes lieutenant governor in 1951 for the first time. Then John Nelson, a veteran, then uh, Eugene Loring, a veteran, and then uh, John Mitchell again, uh, several times as uh, lieutenant governor, and then ultimately um, elected as tribal governor uh, in that position. And so, and then in between you have uh, Ernest Goslin, uh, also a, a veteran, and Frederick uh, Nicola, another veteran. So there's a series of um, uh, military veterans from World War II. Uh, and later, of course, you get a, a number of people who are veterans of the Korean War as well. And I should mention here, uh, Charles Shea, uh, who's still alive, as um, your audience may know, hard to believe, but he's a World War II veteran uh, and he, uh, after his return from uh, a prison of war camp in uh, Germany, uh, was back at the reservation, was, was a depressing situation, um, went back into the military after the war, and then um, finds himself in the Korean War. But when he's back from the Korean War, decorated first in World War II with the Silver Star at Omaha Beach uh, on D-Day, and then with uh, bronze stars from the Korean War, He's actually uh, asked by his uh, two aunts, uh, Lucy Nicola uh, and Pauline Shea, uh, to uh, basically pressure the, uh, the voting issue uh, when the, uh, the Penobscot are still don't have their voting rights in the state of Maine. Uh, he is being asked to go into his uh, dress uniform as a master sergeant at the time uh, decorated, uh, and he stands in line and basically doesn't get the right to vote. And that became a pressure point, once again, of using, uh, on the one hand, uh, the women elders realizing that uh, their own sons or their nephews uh, have been in combat and decorated. And of course, a number of them have uh, lost their lives. Uh, Don um, Donald Francis uh, is one of them, lost his life in the Philippines. And then, of course, um, uh, David Lewis, who was uh, killed uh, in combat in Northeast France in the fall of 1944. And then you, a number of them have been severely wounded. Uh, Leslie Banks uh, should certainly be uh, mentioned here. Remarkable man, uh, also Silver Star in Northern France, and then uh, severe, severely wounded in the Battle of the Bulge on the border of uh, Belgium and Luxembourg. Um, and so these people had um, so-called street cred, if you will, uh, in the state of Maine, and it was very hard to uh, ignore these people. And um, uh, so while these bills were passed, the resistance coming from uh, the Penobscot Nation itself and then from the Passamaquoddy tribe came with people who had seen the world, uh, had a very strong self-esteem, had not internalized racism anymore uh, because they had a sense of dignity that, uh, that was validated uh, by their uh, role as um, in, in the war against um, tyranny, uh, racism uh, by the Germans. Um, that was a racist regime that the Americans fought against. 
And so to have this racism back home as an unfinished business inspired also uh, African-American uh, veterans. And so it's very uh, difficult to underestimate, or sorry, difficult to overestimate uh, the significance of, um, of uh, World War II and later to a lesser extent, the Korean War on the, um, the rebirth of uh, Native American pride and also in the warrior tradition uh, that had been uh, suppressed as well. So it's, it's a fascinating dynamic uh, to look at the roles of um, military veterans of war and the struggle for civil rights and Native rights. Yeah, yeah I, I, I want to just, you know, say in terms of picking up the thread that um, this does lead to the creation of the Department of Indian Affairs. I guess that I'll just catch myself in saying that while, you know, uh, in some ways it was just a, uh, a little kabuki, you know, one part of the state government to the other, the creation of its own Department of uh, and Director of Indian Affairs um, that that gets established in um, in 1965, right when they finally approved this Department of Indian Affairs in the Division of Department of Health and Welfare, um, um, with you know for Penobscot and Passamaquoddy, the, these directors were appointed by the governor in consultation with with the with the tribe with the tribes themselves. Um, you know, I think that was a step in a certain direction. Um, again, not the direction that these very thoughtful documents are, are proclaiming in uh, terms of our independence and sovereignty. Um, but, but it is sort of an attempt by, um, you know, it's part of that step back from termination to recognize that there's an ongoing set of obligations perhaps by the state of Maine. Uh, to to the tribes um, moving forward, um, I think other other things you know start to intervene, um, partly because the, the uh, you know you have um, you know seizure and claims of property by by developers um, near the Passamaquoddies um, in the late '60s. Uh, I believe that the issues started before that, but they start to come to a head. There's, um, you know, uh, the connections not only through the military and, and engagements, um, um, but also, um, you know, the the tribes are engaging with uh, civil rights movements, uh, and you see that uh, forms of protest that are starting to, you know, that are you know peaceful forms of protest that are starting to have some impact. Um, in the you know in the fifties and into sixties that lead to legislative and other kinds of changes, um, this they, these start to happen as well over at Passamaquoddy, and this eventually leads to um, a, um, a a critical lawsuit um, um, captured in Passamaquoddy v. Morton, um, first in seventy two in the in the federal district court. Uh, and then finally in, in the First Circuit in, in 1975, which what's interesting about this lawsuit is um, the after the seizure of Passamaquoddy lands uh, by developers in the, in the late 60s, uh, they, they reach out to the federal government 
to say, you know, you have this thing called a trust responsibility. We're an Indian tribe. Um, you, sh you, you have to, uh, um, you know, come and help us with these. Um, I mean, these are basically property disputes. Um, the, the origins of this case weren't per se sovereignty issues, but the, the government, the federal government at the time, the Department of Interior said, oh, we don't have that with you. We don't have the, this uh, responsibility to you as Indian tribe. You're from the old colonies and your treaties aren't with the United States and that sort of thing. And it's in the Passamaquoddy v. Morton case where that where the the, the uh, first Passamaquoddy tribe and then the, the Penobscots joined later on, um, basically sue the federal government to recognize its trust responsibility, this unique responsibility that the federal government has to tribal interests and to defend tribal um, property and other uh, rights. Um, and that's, that's where that, you know, that's the case that sort of resets the, the, the discussions around not only property, but um, rights of tribes in Maine, as well as in the rest of um, New England. I mean, really recognizing in Passamaquoddy v. Morton that the trust responsibility does not require um, a direct treaty uh, um, signed with the United States, which, which our tribes do not have. Um, but we did have treaties with uh, uh, um, the, you know, with England and then the Commonwealth of Massachusetts and, you know, the, uh, and, and, and other entities that eventually the state of Maine takes these over. Um, and it's in those, but they recognize those treaty obligations as part of the a framework of federal trust responsibility to tribes. Uh, and this sh does shift the, the, the issues related to who uh, are federally recognized tribes, what the contours of our sovereignty are uh, as, as Maine, uh, as tribes that the state of Maine has claimed and tried to <laughs> manage for, for uh, at the time, you know, over, over 150 years. Um, and I think you know, that, that does lead to, um, I mean, this gets disrupted later, but this does lead to the recognition that we are sovereign like other tribes. We are um, part of a federal uh, treaty obligation called the trust responsibility like other tribes. And this gets settled uh, again in response to a land dispute um, in, um, that starts in the, in the late 60s um, over at Passamaquoddy. Carol? Yes, to place this uh, also in a larger context again, um, which is important because uh, Maine may have uh, as a slogan, there you go, I lead, but sometimes that's not the case. Uh, it sometimes follows. And um, the issue here is that uh, all of this takes place uh, in a period of, of, of milit militantism in Indian country that emerges as inspired by black, the Black Power movement. Uh, so you get uh, the murder of um, of uh, Reverend King, right? Um, uh, and you get uh, the murder of uh, Bobby Kennedy. A series of assassinations are happening. And here you see the civil rights movement gets a militant component in the black power movement. And that inspires in turn the so-called red power movement. And the red power movement is extremely important because these guys, many of them were uh, younger people, radicalized, sometimes uh, having uh, being raised off the reservation, alienated from dominant society. A number of them had served in the Vietnam War, which had created a crisis 
within the United States um, in terms of what the hell was this country doing in Vietnam in a liberation struggle by the Vietnamese against the colonization. It was a very complicated issue. There was a student movement. So there's an enormous amount of turmoil in the 1960s, whereby the, uh, the, the militant element of uh, in the um, African-American uh, struggle for civil rights um, moved toward um, the, uh, uh, the American Indian movement founded uh, in the city as an urban movement originally in Minneapolis, and then began to quickly get chapters all across the United States, and also acquired then um, um, a, a, a incredible media attention through people like Russell Banks, uh, sorry, uh, uh, Dennis Banks and uh, Russell Means, among the two uh, uh, better known ones. Um, uh, just as a little aside, I've had the privilege uh, to meet um, Russell Means, um, uh, who came to our house in Kansas when I was Native American uh, faculty advisor for the students there. Um, but it was just very interesting to, uh, to see how they were able to use uh, television and the, the, the news media as a bullhorn, if you will, for their own cause. So you had the Treaty of Broken Treaties that went to Washington, D.C., and then the, um, the occupation of um, Wounded Knee, uh, 1973, which is incredible long standoff. And all that context um, of, um, of um, uh, strong rhetoric, strong uh, action, protest demonstrations, all also began to impact the struggle by Native peoples in Maine. And Donna, of course, uh, I know very well that at that time you were, I think, with the Central Maine Indian Association uh, quite early on that was. Um, all being inspired by those aspects. So I'd rather hear what you have to say through it because you are a Vietnam vet and know very well uh, that the broader context that I'm speaking about, how that also inspired you. I don't, I don't know if, it, if that type of event is, is <clears throat> well, actually, you know, now I think about it, it kind of did. Um, <laughs> I didn't think about it until just the second, um, but yeah, I especially in um, 1995 when I returned to Vietnam, because when when you're in the middle of something, you really can't see the big picture. You can't see the forest for the trees, so to speak. So when I was in actually in Vietnam, um, I didn't really understand. Uh, the totality of what was going on. All I could see was what was happening right in front of me, uh, it, casualties and uh, uh, the, uh, the Viet Cong uh, invading, uh, invading us and the uh, protests in the United States that were stopping the, the bombing that was basically saving our lives. Uh, so, we just, I just had a different perspective of that, of that war uh, and at that time. And so I later came to realize that I, I did, I, I was part of the invasion force of that country, just like the Europeans invaded this country, my homeland. So I was sort of perpetrating on the Vietnamese what was done to us. Uh, I, I didn't, and I, again, I didn't realize that till I was actually in uh, Ho Chi Minh City in 1995, and then it, then it kind of struck me. Uh, 
So, yeah. yeah may I just uh, uh, thank you, Donna, uh, for um, uh, because it's interesting how you took a double take on that. Something uh, said, hey, now I come to think of it, right? It was this, and that's so common for, that was also true with John Stevens' uh, experience when he came back from the Korean War. And of course, we mentioned earlier people like Melvin Neptune, but his son, uh, Gary, right, served in, in Vietnam. And then we, I mentioned Charles Shea, and his nephew was killed there. Lawrence Shea uh, Jr. was killed in Vietnam. And so you get these uh, issues whereby the clear-cut uh, fight ideologically and politically and militarily that was waged against the Japanese and against the Germans, that was very murky in the case of Vietnam, which is the reason why it, it tore the nation itself apart. And a lot of people came back and just asked themselves later very often, what the hell was I doing there? And that was one of the, uh, I remember John Stevens, uh, the Passamaquoddy tribal governor, that inspired him to start looking at his own state and the treatment of the Passamaquoddy. And he said, basically, we are we're there fighting against brown people, but here I am in a, an American army. So a little bit like what you were saying for, for Vietnam, that's what he said with respect to the Korean War. And you know, I, and I think that we didn't really uh, see things. We weren't, we weren't sort of uh, critically educated, I guess, at that at that point, because I hadn't been to college by then. So it really, I think you have to sort of learn these things in order to see things and to understand things. So again, and, and Darren, I think you kind of brought up um, the education aspects, uh, how important those are. So you want to speak to, to the education piece? Yeah, I mean, I think, <clears throat> I mean, in a variety of ways. I mean, I think people, um, you know, folks, you know, I think like Donna, like, like my father, um, you know, who fought in the military took, took advantage of the GI Bill, like other other folks, you know, were, were, were able to get educated, but the education of, of, of being exposed through the military to, you know, different peoples and approaches around the world and the dignity and, and lack of dignity of different human experiences is, is invaluable in, in these situations to, to go uh, far away and, and come back, but also, the um yeah the ability to you know and, and at the time say for example i'm at the university <laughs> right i'm a faculty member at the university of maine you know there was still only you know uh, even through the 60s and into the the early to mid 70s you know a limited number of of scholarship and funds set aside for for indian um indians going to into higher ed um but i do think that there is this um, again, uh, like other groups of people after World War II and, and through Korea, my, my father fought in Korea. Um, you know, I think that these are uh, using the GI Bill to further education, um, further aspire, um, and uh, um, gain the kinds of connections. I mean, that's what we saw in this 1950s um, situation, right? I mean, being a Marine and knowing another Marine who is a lawyer in Massachusetts, you know, like having that as a set of connections um, and then, you know, formulating 
the connection, say, that the Passamaquoddies did um, um, around, uh, on the one hand, the protests in the, in the, in the 60s, um, you know, of land seizures and, um, you know, uh, on the one hand, having, um, you know, a protest where any number of, uh, I believe it was 10 or 12, you know, folks, uh, a protest on Route 1 um, in 1964, getting arrested, that this is actually the, the, the you know, the, the, the match that is that is struck that that leads to this this critical um, court case of um, um, Passamaquoddy v. Morton, um, and that that this leads to a reformulation not only on um, are we um, quote unquote federally recognized as tribes, um, but we also have um, uh, have been basically two thirds of the state of Maine has been taken illegally from us. Um, through violations of the Non-Intercourse Act from 1790, so um, I think the it's it's no small feat that the that folks who were you know um, living in you know in in, on, in ongoing uh, difficult circumstances are able to go and and fight in. Um, um, the military and, and make those kinds of sacrifices and commitments, but experience the world, um, bring that back um, in various ways as 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 warriors and as as as, a, as accomplishments out in the world, and having that um, insight to be able to fight for your rights back at home, um, and that part of that fighting for the for your rights is you know taking advantage of things like the. The, the access to the GI Bill for higher education um, and that sort of thing. I think is one of the phenomenal kind of, you know, uh, I don't know how people did it. You know, my life is so relatively easy compared to my father's, you know, in terms of what he had to do to further his situation. Um, and I think that that's, you know, one of the uh, amazing resiliences of, of, of Wabanaki people is this uh, commitment to nation and community, and um, and and we see. We, I saw that this last week too. With um, again going back to the legislature, um, uh, articulating in very clear ways, sort of our dignity and rights, um, moving uh, forward into uh, into the next part of the twenty first century. Yeah, I think that the uh, education, and I. I wrote an article a while back on uh, education being a two-edged sword. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, one one edge is you know you you get educated and you and you get and you have knowledge and you can communicate. And the other edge is uh, the fact that they they tried they used it in the past to assimilate us and take away our culture. So education, it, it is, it's a, it's a good thing. It could, it's a good thing uh, if, you, if you can really um, take advantage of it. We, and, but we, all, but we, we always had a hard time to do that. And, and, and I guess now we, that gate is open for us. 
Yeah, I mean, and you know, a number of people, you know, in terms of just say, you know, think about our the tuition waiver program at the, in the University of Maine system, you know, um, building up, you know, a, a scholarship program for like, you know, four four native students, uh, you know, from you know, and that was for you know up to four. It was almost never four one one man one woman each from Passamaquoddy and Penobscot, right? That's where our tuition waiver program started at the University of Maine to, um, you know, uh, at all campuses, you know, having tuition waivers for, um, you know, upwards over seven campuses, upwards of 300, 320 native students every semester, um, you know, up to 150 here just at the University of Maine. Um, you know, the people who fought for that, and, and again, you know, Ted was, was critical of that, but there's a whole host of other people, tribal leaders in past, uh, past and, and present in some ways, um, who also fought for that and, and uh, worked with, in, in partnership with folks to make sure that that's um, something that people had access to. It's uh, so many of our contemporary tribal leaders, you know, participated in that tuition waiver program, right? Um, um, uh, across our across our tribal governments uh, here, the Wabanaki tribal uh, governments here in Maine and, uh, and elsewhere. So I think, you know, uh, I feel like we've worked on it in terms of, you know, still that notion of a brain drain too. Like, you know, that's why we have Native American programs is to orient our research and education back towards communities and helping, self-determination and, and nation building um, and, and not just having the same old higher ed programs uh, uh, so people can leave their communities, but to really fight for um, the needs and, and, and um, to build up their communities through their education. Uh, that's been a huge shift in the last uh, two decades, I think, in the way we formulate our higher education. Carol? I'm uh, uh, I'm actually struck uh, when I came to um, Maine uh, in um, the early 1980s, uh, and I compare what has is the situation now. That's like almost unrecognizable uh, in terms of um, uh, the overall situation. It's 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 astounding. A lot of people don't realize uh, the incredible progress that has been made. Um, People are often complaining about a lot of things, but they have no idea really how dire the situation was, even in the early 80s, um, in particular in Northern Maine uh, with the Mi'kmaq and Maliseet, where I worked for nine years, close to 10 years. Um, and so it's, it's the good thing is, you talked about education, uh, Donna and Darren. The good thing is a lot of people have become more better educated, more educated. And the key thing about education is not just information, but also the capacity for critical thinking. So that when people are hearing things that they put not automatically a underscore, but actually a question mark, is this true? Uh, is the way this was formulated, is that conform to reality? And those critical thinking skills um, are essential in any democracy, but in particular also for the nation building that Darren was referring to with respect to the native people, because they themselves need to also be able to question their own leaders. Um, 
So simply because a, an elected tribal chief or a member of the uh, tribal council is saying something or passing a rule, it's not necessarily a good thing because that person happens to be uh, a native person. Uh, anyone is able to make mistakes and errors and uh, a democracy can only function with a well, very well-informed uh, critical thinking public. And it makes things a little bit more messy sometimes, but ultimately we get at a better place than at a place where you have a bunch of technocrats who are making all the decisions for people. Um, and that's what dialogue is about, right? It's a, it's a collective uh, learning process uh, that is happening through, for example, this particular program that you are hosting, Donna. Uh, you're, this is an effort to reach out to the larger public, right? To inform them about issues of sovereignty. Yep, exactly. And, uh, you know, sovereignty is really, a, it's a, I, I don't know if it's something that, uh, that we can, we can uh, get our arms around, but, uh, you know, we can, we can talk about it, we can discuss our, how we got here and uh, our future, what we're looking towards. Uh, well, so. Donna, we're only in our 11th show trying to figure it out. So I'd say that we're, I thought we are trying to uh, put our arms around it. Um, I do think, you know, what I, what I will say just uh, as part of, you know, putting a pin into um, how important this period is, right? You know, we've been talking basically since the, the 50s and 60s and early 70s, right? I think this, this period is a, um, is critical. We talked about veterans, we talked about education, we talked about sort of these access points, right? Um, and I think very importantly, um, shifting discourses or frameworks, right, around the rights of people, and which, which is a, also its own legacy of a World War II world. Um, but then sort of how we as Wabanaki people take these up, we take them up and I think that's what's so amazing about those documents from our petition to the UN in the 1950s is that, sure, we're using, you know, the language of rights um, that is um, formulated in the United Nations for all peoples, right? But we are doing this through our diplomatic traditions, our diplomacies that are, you know, right down to the our marks of, of clan identity, right? So it's it's not anyone's uh, sovereignty. It is our sovereignty, right? I mean, um, I used to have, you know, debates with some of the other Native scholars, like, what is the sovereignty thing? Um, um, uh, David Wilkins, and I, and I agree with him on this. I don't agree with him on everything. Um, he's a Lumbee legal scholar. He, and, and political scientist, he says that it's important that we say tribal sovereignty. We don't just say sovereignty, right? He says the the adjective of, and he's like, even more so, it should be an articulation of our framework, says Penobscot or Passamaquoddy, our sovereignties should reflect our own forms of diplomacy and, and, and decision-making and, and orientations. And, and I would say that that's what's, that's what's so powerful about those 1950s documents. And I think the orientations towards, um, you know, these lawsuits and the, and the victories in these lawsuits um, that happened in the 70s um, are only possible be because people acted, 
and, and people mobilize not only education and access to experiences, they mobilize our traditions of diplomacy, our notions of who we are and our relation to um, our territory, our lands and our responsibilities to, to all those things. So I would just say, um, you know, that's, that's an, another important frame. And I, and, I, and, I, and I see that in how we're doing <laughs> with even last week in the legislature, but, um, you know, win or lose, quote unquote, I think, you know, uh, ultimately, I'm, 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 uh, I'm ever heartened by the by the the words and deeds of, of our of our leaders. Um, uh, not that they're perfect, and I always agree. Um, but I think you know there is this. Um, you know, we are building upon and, and standing on the shoulders of so many of the people. And this period is is so critical to to where we're at now. Um, in terms of education and fighting for rights and, and mobilizing, getting land back to our, our, our tribes um, and, and, and fighting for, um, you know, one way or the other. I mean, we're on the right side here. So I'm always like, you know, we're gonna, <laughs> we'll, we'll win the, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm confident we will win the day. And if it's not this time, it'll be next time. Or in the next time, Donna, Donna's. Uh, uh, I I I woke up maybe on the right side of the bed. I could have a totally different opinion tomorrow, but I think um, we seem to be getting closer. But yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah we're I, at the fifty-four I, minute mark too. So let it's me. It's okay. Yeah, you know, I was thinking that this is so like the 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 fifty-seven when you know, that the tribe reached out for allies and, and they, they got allies. We're doing the same thing. Um, we have got so many allies now. It, I, I, it's hard to believe all of these organizations, thousands of people uh, and all yeah. that testimony. Uh, so, I mean, that's got to count for something, I think. So I hope so. Well, well, you know, Groundhog Day. <laughs> you, you you mean the uh, Bill Murray movie, right, Donna? Uh, where where you play out the same day over and over again. Exactly. Um, and uh, yeah, no, I know it's uh, you know what's what's compelling always is that the reasons the reasons why they don't want to do it have stayed the same. You know they, you know on uh, that's their, you know, you know their attempts now in the last few weeks to have us negotiate against ourselves and, uh, and all that like you know we have seen this all before um and um you know i, I don't know what to say to that i'm you know i i, I am an employee of the university main system it's not that i pull my punches it's just you know you know that, I, I'm shocked that they don't come up with new stuff, honestly. <laughs> they, they don't have to. Why should no, they? That's true. They don't have to. Don't have right? To. Yeah. But you know what? Well, with our education and our new critical. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm amazed, though, that they don't remember, you know, the people who are against the Civil Rights Act of 64, uh, you know, the Voting Rights Act of 64, Civil Rights Act of 65, you know, those laws, they use the same logic. It was like, we're not so sure this language is overly broad you know who's how's it going to impact you know 
non-minorities like you know like that those that is exactly the reasons why no one ever wants to pass civil rights legislation and i don't think they think that they're making those arguments they, they don't think that they're on the side of strom thurmond when they make that argument but it, but they are it's just so consistent with that right yeah so harold i want to give you the last minute <laughs> Yeah, and that's uh, actually just hooking in on what you guys were talking about in terms of civil rights. And the important thing, of course, is that people often conflate civil rights with native rights, and these are two different entities. And so when people are talking about uh, civil rights, you don't talk about the sovereignty of uh, other minorities. There's only one group that has any entitlement to speak about sovereignty within the United States or sovereignty within what's now called Canada. And so it's an important thing for your audience to know that uh, civil rights and native rights are not the same thing and that we will leave probably for our final show. Yes, <laughs> and that's coming up. So thank you for joining us today. I'm your host, Donna Loring. You've been listening to Abenaki Windows. I wanna thank Professor Harold Prince for being on the show today, uh, as well as uh, Professor Darren Ranko. The music for our show is by Rolf Richter, a track called Little Eagles from his CD Dreamwalk. <clears throat> the engineers for our show are Jessica Lockhart of WMPG and John Mann of WERU. Tune in again next month for another Wabanaki Windows. <laughs>